Hello and welcome to the third edition of Informal Intelligence's 2021 podcast. In this week's podcast, we were discussing the heavily criticised approval of Agilhelm in Alzheimer's disease. The approval of Agilhelm by the FDA on June 7th, 2021 marks the first approval of a drug in the Alzheimer's space for 18 years. And while many patients will be welcoming the introduction of a new drug, there are many experts who are sceptical of the FDA's decision. Uh, additionally, Biogen's pricing strategy has sparked outrage from public and private insurers alike. So to help me discuss some of the different elements of this complex story, uh, I have three expert guests joining me. First off, I'd like to introduce Desmontes Pamela Spicer. Hi, everyone. Uh, Pam is a senior analyst at Desmonte who covers CNS area. Uh, she'll be discussing some of the clinical data support from Adjahelm, and hopefully Pam can enlighten us about uh, how the FDA came to its decision. Secondly, we have Jess Merrill, a senior editor for our Insights products, uh, Pink Sheet and Script. Hi there, thanks for having me. Uh, Jess will be discussing um, an overview of the commercial landscape for Biogen and the huge impact this will have on the Alzheimer's disease space. And lastly, also joining me from the Insights team is senior editor Catherine Kelly, who's going to be covering uh, the pricing and reinvestment side of the story. Hi there. Brilliant. So to start us off, uh, Pammy, can you walk us through the clinical data for Agilhelm and uh, the rationale for FDA's decision? Sure, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so kind of going back to the, the history of the drug development for Agilhelm, because um, that's kind of relevant in this context and shed some light on the controversy around the drug. If, if you go back to 2015, Biogen, that's when Biogen actually began the phase three program for Agilhelm. Um, and then in early 2019, Biogen actually announced that they discontinued the program. <laughs> and this was based on an interim futility analysis, which basically said that the two phase three studies were unlikely to achieve their primary endpoint. Now we know that had Biogen looked at the studies independently, at that time, one was trending positive, And that study ultimately met statistical significance on its primary endpoint, which was looking at um, CDR sum of boxes, which is a scale that includes cognitive function. Um, and that's pretty huge because this is the first time we've seen an anti-amyloid study um, in a phase three program or phase three trial meet the primary endpoint of cognitive involving cognitive functions. So that's that's a big deal. However, um, the second study in this phase three program was identically designed and that one was still negative. And that study actually drove the overall negative interim futility analysis results that was derived from the combined data from both trials. Um, so kind of just looking briefly at what, what the sponsor or what the manufacturer is saying is um, driving this difference, Biogen actually believes that a protocol amendment um, which allowed more patients and specifically the APOE positive patients, which are patients that are um, kind of, a, it's a gene that drives increased likelihood to have Alzheimer's disease. Um, these patients were allowed to receive the higher dose. Um, and at the time the phase three studies were started, back in 2015, kind of the agency regulatory bodies kind of globally and um, the industry as a whole knew less about a side effect known as ARIA or amyloid related imaging abnormalities. Um, and, so in order to mitigate kind of that side effect of ARIA, they required that these patients who are more likely to have this amyloid um, be on a lower dose. Um, and so this protocol amendment actually enabled those patients to go on the higher dose, which is now the approved dose, the 10 mg per kg um, per kilogram, um, which is based on body weight. And so 
the um, study that started later, the study that started one month after the, so there were two studies that were run, the study that was started a month later actually ended up being the positive study. And the theory is that this, um, the patients in that study were exposed to that higher dose. On average, the dose exposure in that later study was higher. Um, and this led to the difference in the outcomes of these two otherwise identically designed trials. Um, so that's kind of the theory here that, that Biogen is obviously pointing to. Um, they've also kind of chopped up the negative study and looked at patients who just received the highest dose uninterrupted, and those patients would have had a positive outcome. Um, however, there is a lot of pushback here because, you know, there's flaws in using post hoc analyses. There's flaws in using, you know, assuming that the positive study is the correct study and not assuming that the negative study is the correct study. And there are probably ways to chop up the positive study's data to support the fact that the negative study actually is reflective of the drugs, um, how the drug, whether or not the drug works. So, regardless of all, all this uh, context, Biogen at the time decided to file based on the positive study and the existing data that they had. So, they decided to file without running that uh, third confirmatory trial, basically. Um, and they worked relatively closely with the FDA, which also has stirred up a bit of controversy in terms of how objective the FDA can stay during the process when they worked so closely with the sponsor. Um, in, re in reviewing the drug. So now we can fast forward to the advisory committee meeting for the drug, um, which ended up being overwhelmingly negative. So a panel of outside experts that the FDA brought in to review the data actually voted against the drug in terms of data to support the clinical efficacy. Um, and that's that primary endpoint, that CDR sum of boxes that I mentioned, that's looking at cognitive function. So they said this drug doesn't appear to work. There's these two identical trials, one's positive, one's negative. We don't, I mean, we, we don't know if it works or not. So there, there's the data is inconclusive, basically. And then the FDA actually um, ended up using a different pathway than what it would normally be used. So normally the FDA looks at those primary endpoints or the main goal of these, these pivotal studies. And instead the FDA said, okay, we're going to approve this using this accelerated approval pathway, which allowed them to use these sub-studies that were um, included in both trials that looked at amyloid PET. So the PET brain scans picked up amyloid reduction. So the drug actually was doing its job at removing amyloid from the brain. And that's what the FDA used as a surrogate marker um, for approval here. Um, and so now Biogen is required to complete a confirmatory trial that will be completed at some point this decade, um, which is a pretty long time frame. I mean, it's like nine years to get the final submission data to the FDA. Um, and that's kind of the clinical clinical data, what the approval is based on. And then there's a third component, which is this incidence of ARIA, which is the amyloid-related am imaging abnormalities. That's picked up on MRI. Um, and the label for aducanumab does require, it doesn't require that you have amyloid present in the brain um, using amyloid PET, which is what they used in the studies. And it does, you know, it doesn't even require amyloid positivity versus using um, through in CSF, which is a spinal tap. Um, looking at elevated levels of amyloid in the spinal fluid, um, those will probably come down the line with coverage decisions and ensuring patients actually have amyloid before they're administered the anti-amyloid drug. But the label does include monitoring for the side effect of ARIA, which is this brain swelling. And um, the label requires MRI monitoring before you get the drug and then during treatment as well. So um, that's gonna be picked up on um, MRI. Thanks for that, Pammy. So this clearly seems to be mixed results. Um, 
you know, the ADCOM meeting, all, all the experts have voted against the drug. Um, and it's very rare that the FDA has, you know, disregarded this and gone forward uh, and approved the drug. So I'm just wondering, um, you know, can you, would you be able to tell us about what kind of motivations the FDA has in terms of pushing forward disapproval? Yeah, so it's very, very unusual. And I think during the meeting, the FDA even said, we're not really going to look at this surrogate marker. And um, they went ahead and did that anyway. And I think three panelists have since quit, which is also (laughs) controversial and unusual and just adds to the controversy around what should be a really exciting time in seeing this positive study um, for the first time in (laughs) anti-amyloid antibody history, which we've been, you know, sponsors have been evaluating these type, this class of drugs for a very long time. And it's a very important class of drugs because it, it really gets at the underlying pathophysiology of the disease. So amyloid is a hallmark of the disease along with tau. Um, and, you know, for the first time we have a trial in hand that says, you know, this anti-amyloid antibody is actually has an effect on cognitive function. And we have a whole history of failed studies um, with this class of drugs. So it's it's very exciting, and I think the thing that's motivating the FDA here is really just the huge unmet need. I mean, we have millions of Americans that are affected by Alzheimer's disease, and this th- these numbers are just growing with an aging population here. Um, currently, the only the only treatments we have to target this disease are symptomatic, so they don't target the underlying progression of the disease. The disease is still getting worse, um, and we want something that this drug doesn't show. The data doesn't show that this drug, let's be clear, the data doesn't show that this drug stops the disease or reverses it. It shows that it might slow the progression of the disease. And at that, um, the data we have in hand from that positive study, the clinical effect is, is very small. Um, so, you know, it might not, it's it's arguably imperceptible by doctors and, and um, patients. That's how small that clinical effect is. So um, it might not even be noticeable, but there is a statistical difference, which is kind of the key we want to see for showing whether or not a drug works. Um, but again, we have a that's that's all talking about the positive study and not the study that failed. In this failed study, the patients on on drug did numerically worse than placebo. Not statistically different though. Um, but yeah, in terms of Alzheimer's disease, there's just a huge unmet need. There's millions of patients. Um, it's a huge burden to society, not in terms not just in terms of patients, but you know these patients as the disease progress put a huge burden on their caregivers and their loved ones, and you know they don't want to burden their families. So you know, this whole area, this whole, um, you know, everybody in this space with Alzheimer's disease is just screaming for something that might work, something that they can, you know, put hope on. And currently there's nothing until aducanum has approval, which gives us hope that maybe something can slow the progression of this disease. Um, but again, this is based on very mixed clinical data that that Biogen will need to prove in a confirmatory third study, which is a contingency for that, um, for remaining on the market as part of the accelerated approval. Yeah, so if we go on to talk about this this phase four study, um, so I'm kind of interested to know, um, how will this trial look? Well, you know, in terms of what kind of criteria are the FDA asking for? Uh, will Biogen keep using this surrogate endpoint or, you know, are the FDA now going to want them to have hard clinical data? Right. So I'm not aware of a huge amount of 
publicly released details on this particular study. Um, but I do imagine that, you know, having this this only positive phase three trial for an anti-amyloid antibody, Biogen will want to stick as closely as possible to that, the design of that study that seemed to work. Um, so, you know, their, their approval in the label, the, the current label for aducanumab, which is branded as Aduhelm, is the 10 mg per kg dose, um, weight-based dosing. It is an infusion, a monthly infusion. So I imagine that they will drop the lower doses that they evaluated in the phase three program and just look at the 10 mg per kg dose and compare that to placebo directly. Um, I assume that, you know, the minimum duration will be a year and a half, um, possibly longer, because in order to see such subtle, subtle clinical effects, you need to have a very long duration. The patient population will mirror that of the phase three studies in my mind, um, which will be this early Alzheimer's disease patient population. So these include patients with mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. Um, the studies, the phase three program and the label has a six month titration. So that's where you gradually increase the dose to get to that full 10 mg per kg dose. Um, and that's to help mitigate the side effects of ARIA, which we discussed. Um, and then I also imagine it will be a massive study. All of the all of the studies that look at these anti-amyloid antibodies in early Alzheimer's patients are huge, um, which is why it's so disappointing when they fail because there's just so much invested in this. But um, you know, these the, it needs to have a, har a huge number of patients in order to statistically differ from placebo on those very small differences that you're seeing in cognitive benefit or in clinical outcomes. So I do imagine that this study will have CDR sum of box as the primary endpoint, um, just to kind of mirror that study that worked. So, um, and that's been a validated endpoint that they've used in other studies of anti-amyloid antibodies. So that's been um, very commonly used. And I don't imagine that they're going to use the surrogate outcome, the surrogate measure of amyloid PET, because they're trying to prove that that does bridge the gap between, you know, um, amyloid PET does lead to a clinical benefit. So I don't think that clinical, while amyloid PET will be uh, evaluated in the study, I don't think that's going to be the primary outcome. I think they're going to stick with CDR sum of boxes to try to prove that this drug does clear amyloid one, which we've shown, but now that does translate into a clinical benefit that is meaningful or at least significantly different, <laughs> maybe not meaningful, but statistically, statistically different. Um, and then a final point to make perhaps is that um, I do expect Biogen to perhaps invest more in deliberate recruitment tactics to try to diversify their trial a bit more. They've gotten a lot of bad press about how their trial is just very um, not really diverse in terms of patient population. So I expect that they will focus more on that effort because this disease does affect minorities um, and so that will be an important factor as well. But we will see. We'll see. I mean, I don't know what the requirements are for any of these. Um, this is all speculation at this point on my end. Thanks, Pammy. Yeah, there definitely seems to be a lot of questions still left for, for Biogen uh, in terms of clinical data. Um, but now let's move on to, uh, I guess, uh, one of the other sides of the story, which is the more the commercial uh, and how they're doing on pricing. Uh, Jess, would you be able to tell us about pricing strategy for Biogen? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. So Biogen has set the price at what will uh, be about $56,000 a year for treatment. Um, that's, a, that's a price that is based on um, 
on weight. So that it could actually be even higher than that. That's just an estimate. Um, and there's other costs too to think about, including the infusion cost, um, the PET imaging uh, for confirming diagnosis or CSF testing, and also um, MRI scans that are required as part of the labeling um, to monitor for safety risk, that, that risk of ARIA that Pammy was talking about. Um, and so I've heard uh, even some payers are looking at this, the price of this product being even more if you packaged all of that into account um, of like around $100,000. So it's really a significant, huge price. It's higher than a lot of people um, were expecting, even some analysts on the highest end. And uh, it's very different price than what the what ICER, um, which is the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review here in the U.S., the third party drug pricing review organization that uh, evaluates drugs uh, for their their value. Um, it's a very different price than what they've they've said, which um, they think the value of Aduhelm is more in the range of you know, around between $4,000 and $8,400 at the highest and most optimistic view. So that's very striking. And it's it's been getting um, a lot of negative press, obviously, um, as these things do. And it's going to be interesting to see how it really plays out when it comes to the reimbursement uh, environment and how payers react, especially Medicare and CMS. Um, the government. My colleague Kathy Kelly is going to be weighing in more on that topic, um, which should be particularly interesting because almost all of the patients with Alzheimer's disease are over the age of 65 and are Medicare patients. So um, I just say sort of my initial view after one month of following this story as it's been developing is that there's still a lot um, to unfold and it's just such an unprecedented approval, um, this huge amount of millions of patients who are desperate for treatment being offset with this very uh, moderate clinical evidence that we have and what is now a really high price um, for the drug that the healthcare system will have to absorb. So uh, this drug has all the makings of a huge blockbuster. Um, it certainly appears poised to become that, but I think that the early launch is going to be uh, less straightforward and it's becoming clear that there are going to be some roadblocks because um, you have some payers who are saying they aren't going to cover it. These are some private payers uh, saying that they won't cover it, including some Blue, Clo Blue Cross Blue Shield programs. Um, because they say that it's experimental still. And then last week, we had two major medical centers, uh, Cleveland Clinic and Mount Sinai, coming out and saying that they weren't going to administer it, um, which is also very interesting development, especially, um, you know, given that Biogen has said that they would have 900 uh, medical centers at launch that would be ready to go. Um, and... So I guess the big key, too, will be what happens with CMS, and that could take uh, several months for CMS now to conduct this analysis, the national coverage determination analysis that they've announced. Um, and so that could be a big issue as well. I just want to mention, too, uh, quickly, you know, one thing that really struck me as maybe being a little underappreciated was hearing from some of the physician experts that were at the ICER meeting uh, that they held last week who were really talking about the their concerns about the safety and the risks of aria which is you know can lead to brain swelling and bleeding and the fact that uh, the clinical trials excluded patients um, on blood thinners and that a lot of Alzheimer's patients are taking blood thinners and so sort of the real world questions you know about how that will play out 
in the market. And so um, I just noted, you know, a lot of real concern about the safety issues, not to mention the long-term um, safety, lack of long-term safety data. Um, and so I do think that could be another sort of issue that Biogen's facing in the commercial market. Thanks for that, Jess. Um, so I guess my first question is in terms of from the response from, you know, ISA, you know, estimating the drug value much, much lower. Um, several affiliates of Blue Cross refusing to cover their drug and slamming it as an investigational therapy. Are we likely actually to see Biogen um, developing cracks? You know, do we do we think they're going to lower the list price? Uh, well, that'd be highly unusual. So it's not something that that really happens in the drug industry. And you're what you see more often is that drug makers could offer a really high rebate to offset the list price, which is how uh, drug makers negotiate with payers for formulary access for their drugs and sort of compete against each other. Uh, payers actually sort of, I think, appreciate the higher price because then they get uh, a higher rebate sometimes, and that goes to offset, they say, um, to offset uh, insurance plan payments. Um, it's all part of this complex system of the U.S. drug, uh, the drug system and how drugs are paid and a lot of the controversy around it. But I can think of two instances that came to mind, um, and I just mentioned them because uh, Biogen uh, executives have on several instances said they are, you know, would consider revising the price if the market turns out to be larger than they anticipate, um, because they say it's going to be a smaller more niche drug than some people are thinking, um, and that's what they base their pricing assumptions on. So um, I do think that that uh, you know that would be interesting if that happened. Um, it would be very notable, but uh, probably very unlikely, but not unprecedented. So there was um, the PC PCSK9 inhibitors, uh, Amgen's Repatha and Sanofi Regenerant's Praluent, where the prices were cut by 60% um, several years after they launched because they just did not get any, um, they got so much pushback from payers and did not get a lot of uptake. And then there's another instance about 10 years ago when Sanofi launched the colorectal cancer drug Zaltrap in 2012, they got a lot of pushback on their price. This was a VEGF inhibitor with moderate clinical efficacy. And basically, you know, Memorial Sloan Kettering announced that they wouldn't provide Zaltrap to patients, which is highly unusual for an oncology drug, um, because they said it wasn't very much, you know, the efficacy was too questionable versus um, Avastin, which was much cheaper at the time. And so um, they had an op-ed in the New York Times, and it became a really big PR nightmare for Santa Fe, and they ended up uh, revising the price. And in that whole instance with like a medical center coming out and actually criticizing the drug or saying they wouldn't administer it kind of reminded me last week of that situation, you know, when you've got the some medical centers coming out and saying they aren't going to administer out of home. Adjahelm is, um, so whilst it's the first approved drug, uh, there's also some pipeline candidates following it. Uh, so I guess one of them is Eli Linney's Don Um I think I've butchered that one again. Um, but yeah, so we have Eli Linney's drug coming in. Um, so when it does eventually come to market, do we expect it to have a similar price to Biogen? Or do we think it's going to go for something a little bit more payer-friendly? Uh, and in more line with that, what ISA is hoping for. Uh, yeah, so it's again, drug makers typically price their drugs on par with one another, and then they compete uh, against each other uh, with rebates and discounts uh, to get formulary access with payers. 
And so typically that's what you see, um, and especially uh, in a category where there's fewer, less competition, um, you know, and when there's more competition, that can open up the market more. But again, it's typically done through rebates and drug makers still say, hey, this this is still changing the pricing dynamic. Um, but at the same time, um, it, it doesn't help with the, the out-of-pocket costs and affordability for patients since they still have to cover those costs. And that is going to be an issue with Adahelm. And and um, this case, though, however, uh, Lilly CEO David Ricks has said that the competition in the category will help um, the price situation, sort of insinuating um, that they would be willing to compete on price. But I guess we would have to see how that plays out. Uh, just whilst we're on the topic of the competition, uh, I'm just wondering if there's uh, how how actually Eli Lilly's drug is shaping up compared to Adjihelm. Uh, and whether it's actually going to be a significant contender when it reaches the market. Um, well, I'll just say one thing about this approval from the FDA is that it's really sort of opened the door for faster approvals for some of the other competitors in the market because they're saying, hey, uh, this drug got approved, approved under an accelerated review on the surrogate marker of amyloid beta. Um, we have data on that, too, even while we're running these larger phase three trials. So, for example, Eli Lilly has said um, that they will file for accelerated approval by the end of the year for their um, their rival drug. And then Roche has a drug that's in development, um, gantanirumab, and I'm sure I butchered that. They said that they, um, they have not said that they're going to file for accelerated um, review yet, as far as I know, but um, they do you know, have phase three trials ongoing. And anyway, it sounds like Lilly's drug, um, now the target for approval could be 2023. Uh, Pammy, maybe you want to talk a little bit about sort of the clinical differences. Um, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we have Lilly's drug, which is a little bit newer to the scene relative to Roche's drug. Um, and yeah, as you said, they're filing the BLA based on their amyloid reduction, which might is remarkably fast um, amyloid reduction. But again, there's that question of does that translate to clinical benefit? In this case, um, they did show a decline, you know, in the primary endpoint. They showed that it, it you know, they showed effect on the primary endpoint. However, there is some question because that didn't follow through down, that didn't trickle down into the secondary endpoint. So um, with just this phase two study, we still have uh, quite a few questions here and they are running that uh, phase three study. So um, we're going to wait for that phase three data to kind of play out before we make any guesses there. But in the meantime, they are filing based on just their amyloid pet reduction data, which is a bit remarkable. And that's kind of where um, Biogen's drug and Biogen's filing kind of changed the changed the dynamic here and that, and that enabled these developers to file a lot more quickly right now, at least. Um, based on their pet reduction data. And then Roche's drug has demonstrated amyloid pet reduction. They were studying the drug previously in a phase three program, and then um, it wasn't shaping out too well for them. But when Biogen came out with their phase 1b data and their drug had a much higher dosing, um, Roche went ahead and started another pivotal phase three program, which is their graduate program, which is ongoing right now. And their gantanirumab is in a, they're looking at gantanirumab at a much higher dose. One difference is that gantanirumab is subcutaneously delivered, um, whereas Adju Biogen's drug and Lilly's drug are, are intravenous infusions, so monthly infusions. Um, and as we'll hear possibly from Kathy about, you know, 
what these infusions, the impact, the downstream effect that might have on coverage in terms of Part B coverage uh, falling under Part B of Medicare, that's um, going to have some impact there. But in terms of the data, yeah, we'll see. I mean, in terms of the cognitive data, cognitive function data and clinical efficacy of these drugs, I'll say stay tuned because um, right now all we can really say without any kind of controversy is that these anti-amyloid antibodies do remove amyloid from the brain and we need to bridge the gap between that biomarker towards to, you know, clinical effect. Thanks both. Um, so just before we move on to Kathy and uh, our discussion about the regulatory side of this, um, I have one more question about um, I guess the, the sales expectation for, for Ajahn. So I know Josh, you mentioned uh, that it's going to be a blockbuster selling drug. Um, so I'm kind of just wondering what Biogen's initial sales expectations were. And, you know, now that the dust is kind of settling, uh, what we actually kind of have as current expectations of how Ajahn will do. Yeah, so obviously just given this huge market opportunity um, for even hundreds of thousands of patients, uh, not to mention possibly millions, uh, it's a huge opportunity. And um, interestingly, it's a really big, uh, it comes at a really important time for Biogen uh, because they're actually, they've been under a lot of pressure because they lost uh, one of their, their top selling drug, Tecfidera, a multiple sclerosis drug, last year to generic competition. And so um, it's really, you know, a lot of it was riding on this drug approval. Um, with that in mind, you know, Biogen has included added home sales already in their financial guidance for the year. Um, which is about 10.4 billion to 10.75 billion. And um, that is actually quite a decline um, from 2020 uh, revenue of 13.45 last year. And that, um, you know, absorbs the Tecfidera loss largely. Um, and I guess maybe we'll hear more uh, later this week because Biogen will be presenting their second quarter sales and earnings results. And maybe they will revise their financial outlook now that Edahelm has been approved. And maybe we'll hear more about the launch trajectory and what that will look like in the near term if, if things might be moving slower than they thought or not. Um, and just to sort of recap, you know, Biogen has said they think this is going to be a much smaller market than um, and a more niche product than some people are thinking about because it will be a specialist product and they think it will be used in the patient population that was in the clinical trials, meaning mild to cognitive impairment and uh, diagnosis, a confirmed diagnosis via testing. Uh, so they say they think it's about one to two million people um, with mild cognitive impairment that could be confirmed as Alzheimer's, but that those patients right now aren't uh, generally seen by a specialist and they're not all, con all confirmed diagnosis. So, but even still, if you take into consideration a much smaller market than that, maybe um, 500,000 patients a year, which is what the Kaiser Family Foundation um, and groups like that sort of estimate, estimate it's, um, we're talking about a really big market opportunity. Thanks, Jess. Um, yeah, so with millions of people um, on Edge of Helm, uh, I guess the important question is, is what they're expecting to see in terms of insurance co coverage um, over the next nine months. Uh, so we have a wait of about um, several months until the CMS makes their draft um, analysis in January 2022 uh, and a further four months um, before the final 
analysis in April 2022. Uh, Kathy, would you be able to um, give us your insight into the CMS analysis, please? Sure. Um, and in, just in terms of what to expect between now and the final decision comes out, um, you know, Medicare will is the primary payer for this drug, as Jess said. It's expected they're going to manage 80% of claims. Um, so all eyes are on what Medicare is going to do in this case. Um, they CMS did open a national coverage analysis on July 12th. That's, as you said, is going to result in a national coverage determination, a draft NCD by January 1st, followed by um, the final decision in mid-April. Um, the way Medicare coverage works is um, there are regional Medicare administrative contractors who can make coverage decisions in the absence of any national decision. So the max, as they call them, you know, could, when presented with a claim for Adjahelm, decide to cover it, or they could decide not to. Um, indications I've heard are that the the max are in most of the max are inclined to basically defer a decision until CMS comes out with its national decision, which you know essentially is a no. <laughs> um, for you know the the commercial coverage, as Jess said, there's you know news that a handful of uh, Blue Cross related plans have uh, announced that they're not going to be covering Adjuhelm. Um, those are small plans, relatively speaking. They, you know, they might be state statewide plans. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how the the national uh, insurers respond. It is a kind of a um, unfolding situation now, but I think in general it's expected to be a slow rollout. Um, and um, the the NCD that we're expecting from CMS. Um, was was really expected in this case um, because of the limited data on the drug's effectiveness, um, a lack of data on long-term effects, and it's potentially very large uh, patient population. Um, NCDs and local coverage determinations, for that matter, are very rare for drugs. Um, they, you know, almost never have um, been issued, um, but as I said, it wasn't. It, was not unexpected in this case. Um, generally, NCDs uh, go can re can go different ways. Um, they could result in a decision not to cover something, or they could uh, lead to a decision to cover, but only in certain patients, or you know, in certain sites, or perhaps um, involving specialists, you know, as opposed to like general practitioners. Um, they could also involve what's known as coverage with evidence development, and that means that you know uh, a drug could get coverage, but uh, only on the condition that the the manufacturer um, agrees to to conduct further studies on the safety and effectiveness of the drug. That could mean anything from you know another randomized clinical trial, which um, Biogen is committed to doing at this point anyway under its you know approval with FDA, um, or the um, NCD could involve collection of data via like a patient registry. Um, the other thing I'll mention in connection with this is that <laughs> CMS or Medicare currently has a national coverage determination in place 
restricting coverage for PET scans. So they will only cover PET scans in the in the context of a clinical trial. So I think CMS is going to have to do something about that in this case if they decide to um, to cover Adjuhelm. They they may have to revisit that NCD and you know. Uh, loosen up the restrictions somewhat, you know, if because it does seem like um, PET scans were were very important in the in the trials. Um, the whole process of NCDs uh, involves a lot of opportunity for public input. Right now, there's a there's a comment period underway. When the draft decision comes out, there'll be another comment period. Um, there's a couple of stakeholder meetings that are planned for the coming weeks. And potentially there will be a meeting of, of Medicare's um, advise, coverage advisory committee. Um, so, so those are the basics um, in terms of, you know, what CMS is doing. Um, I'll also say that um, the national coverage determination, you know, it will not consider drug costs. Medicare is not supposed to consider costs when it when it makes its um, coverage policies. But the the potential cost to Medicare of covering Adjuhelm likely led to a decision to open this coverage analysis. Um, just recently, the Kaiser Family Foundation estimated that if just 20, 25% of those 2 million uh, potential patients um, are prescribed Adjuhelm, spending on the drug in one year could, could reach $29 billion and uh, just you know, for uh, perspective, total spending in Medicare Part B, um, which is the program that would cover the drug, reached 37 billion in 2019. Um, Biogen and ASI did a breakdown of um, cost to expected cost to patients, um, cost sharing for this drug, and they they sort of maintained that most patients. I think they said 90% um, will not have, you know, major uh, cost-sharing burdens. Um, I think that's, you know, that's there's some dispute about that. Um, if if people are covered by Medicare Advantage plans, there are caps on cost-sharing in those plans, but some of them are pretty high. So, you know, people could be on the hook for thousands of dollars still. Um, but Biogen and and uh, ISAI also acknowledged that um, 10% of, of Medicare beneficiaries could be subject to cost sharing of up to 11,000 or more than $11,000 per year. And those would be beneficiaries who are enrolled in traditional Medicare and don't have supplemental like Medigap policies. Most people do have those, but about 10% of Medicare beneficiaries do not have that. Those, those, you know, supplemental policies are made to fill in the gap of, you know, Part B covers 80% of your cost, but 20% is the responsibility of the beneficiary. So, you know, Medigap uh, plans are, are designed to cover that 20%, but for the 10% of people that don't have those, you know, they could be subject to 20% of the cost, which adds up to $11,200 per year. Um, the other thing uh, I'll, I'll just throw in, Pam, you mentioned the, um, the difference in the way Medicare covers IV versus subcutaneous um, administrated drugs. Um, Part B, those are physician-administered drugs, does, you know, would cover the IV forms, and this 
NCD is um, would cover Part B drugs. It is designed to cover um, related drugs to aduhelm, so drugs that are um, amyloid-directed monoclonal antibodies. But if there's a subcutaneous drug and if it's self-administered, it might not be subject to this, this NCD. <laughs> um, it might just be covered by Medicare Part D. Um, but I think it does come down to whether it will be self-administered. It sounds like it might be. So I guess we'll have to see, but that could raise a pretty interesting um, competitive dynamic here. Thanks for that, Kathy. I guess what we're, we're kind of all wondering uh, just to start off with is what uh, what are we expecting from the January uh, analysis by the CMS? Yeah, I think um, it, I think it's pretty likely that they will tailor coverage. So they would only cover Aduhelm and I guess other drugs in the in the uh, in patients who match the eligibility criteria for the clinical trials. Um, they, they could also set other parameters around, say, sites of care. And I think a, a lot of people feel that they will also impose a coverage with evidence development requirement. Um, but, you know, what what form that study would take is, you know, is hard to say. Um, I heard an expert, um, a guy named Mark McClellan, who's a former CMS administrator and now heads a, a policy program at Duke, um, he was speculating that um, CMS probably won't require another randomized clinical trial. He's expecting that they will require, you know, a more observational study like a, a patient registry. But, you know, there's a lot of discussion going on right now about that. So we'll, you know, we'll have to see. But that sounded right to me that um, there'll probably be tailored coverage, probably be coverage with evidence development. And, you know, it seems likely um, that it would be a sort of a registry type of a, a study. Uh, so of course it's um, the the drug is very costly, but I'm just wondering, trying to kind of comprehend uh, why is Adhem such a challenge for the CMS coverage policy? Yeah, I mean I think you know it goes back to the very limited data, um, uh, you know basically no data on the long-term effect and the fact that there's such a large patient population that's going to be taking this drug. Um, I think added together those, you know, led CMS to to do this, to, to make this move. So the FDA is becoming more innovative uh, in the pathways that, that it's using. Uh, so things like accelerated approval. Do you think it's time for Medicare coverage policy to also adapt and to become more accommodating of this? I do. Um, yeah, CMS's coverage policies, you know, the basics really haven't changed for more than 20 years. Um, and now they're faced with, you know, more drugs coming through these innovative approval pathways at FDA, you know, often with, um, you know, more limited data. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the need for a long-term follow-up. So, yes, I mean, I, I, I do think that they're going to have to figure out other ways to, to design their coverage. Um, you know, we've, we've already been challenged with, um, or they've already been challenged with, you know, some of the gene therapies. They, CMS actually did open a national coverage uh, analysis for the CAR-Ts in 2018, um, and they did, 
you know, at first they proposed restricting the patient population and also coverage with evidence development. In the final, they did roll back those requirements because they felt that some of the um, things that the companies were already doing, you know, uh, under agreements with FDA kind of got to the same conclusion. So, but that's just an example of, you know, the kinds of treatments that CMS is finding itself facing. So, um, uh, they do need to really focus on developing more innovative policies. Mark McClellan also said at that um, ICER meeting recently that um, in the coverage division at CMS, um, there are probably half as many people with advanced expertise in coverage policy than they had when he was administrator, and that was in 2004 to 2006. Um, and he said that he hopes that this situation with Adjuhelm is a wake-up call. And, you know, I think it it has to be. <laughs> so there's, they're going to need to be, you know, more resources directed at CMS and a lot more focus on, you know, innovative policies. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, it definitely seems that Adjuhelm, um, not just kind of pivotal in Alzheimer's, but will also actually have a big effect on um, the regulatory processes in general. Mm -hmm. um, so thanks for that, Kathy, uh, and also Jess and Pamela. Uh, so that's all we have for this week. Um, please don't forget to have a look at uh, the Alzheimer's disease disease analysis on the Data Monitor website. Uh, as well as having a look at some of the stories by Jess and Kathy on Pinksheet and Scrip. Um, please stay tuned for the August edition of the Pharma Intelligence Podcasts and bye for now.